uh, as individuals, probably as communities, we have an optimism bias. We want we want to think of the positive things. It's very difficult for us to deal with with negative things, especially amorphous threats like a like a virus. Like if we you know if we are dealing with climate change is another example of that, right? Mm. Uh, so I think there is a bias for us not to want to deal with that because we could be absorbed by all negative feeling. I've got. We've uh, we've shifted our teaching here at the university and most universities to be online. And I've got some students that are perfectly fine finishing their their terms, and others that are just so anxious and so nervous about being away from their families that they're not able to do it. So I think it's the full gamut of human emotion that uh, that takes place. How's it going? So today I'm thrilled and privileged to bring you the story and research of an incredible. Um, historian. His name is James Deshook. He's the author of the book uh, Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation and the Loss of Aboriginal Life. Uh, this is a, a harrowing account of the systemic practices of uh, starvation that were implemented by Canada's first prime minister against the ad- indigenous people uh, really to clear the way for settlement. And the multiple award-winning Clearing the Plains sparked widespread debates about genocide in Canada because, you know, when you think about Canada, you don't think about things like genocide. But certainly uh, James has shone a light for um, for Canadians and more broadly the audience uh, of the international community around the systems that have been put in place to separate us as human beings and even to this day uh, the present disparity in health and economic well-being between indigenous and non-indigenous populations both locally in south africa and again in canada and all around the world the lingering racism and misunderstanding that permeates the national consciousness and consciousness of the general population around the world Uh, But this really is a story about history. It's a story about reconciling our own unique histories to create a future that we can aspire to. So without further ado, into James Deshook. And we're live. Hey guys, welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. Today I'm joined all the way from some place I can't pronounce uh, in Canada. (laughs) But uh, James Deshook, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. Where are you? I'm in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. <laughs> it, it, it's great to have Americans try to pronounce the name of my town. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Or South Africans for that matter, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, so, James, um, you're highly regarded in your field. Um, so, for our viewers and listeners out there, what do you do exactly? What's your kind of claim to fame? Um, I have a PhD in Canadian history, and I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies here at the University of Regina. So my joke is I'm, I'm one of the better historians in the phys ed department at, at U of R. So uh, I spent a couple of decades researching, researching the roots of the health disparity between, uh, I guess, settler Canadians, mainstream Canadians, and the indigenous population here in Western Canada. Okay, and now why would you do something like that? Where, where did this journey start? That's a good question. Uh, one of the things I noticed maybe 30 years ago when I was back in grad school was just uh, how, how different people's lives were. Neighbors, in fact. Uh, there's a, there's a federal, Canadian federal government minister a couple of years ago said that there was a 15-year difference in life expectancy between mm. Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people in Canada. So we, we should have access to the same services. We claim to be, uh, you know, a fair and decent country. 
but really that hasn't been the case uh, really since Confederation in the, in the mid eighteen uh, hundreds. Um, it's funny this uh, this exact thing has come up. Um, I was talking to um, damn her name's I've gone blank, um, but um, she'll be coming up my show soon. Uh, but essentially, she's also an historian, but she focused really on pandemics um, and uh, based in the US. And we were reviewing a New York Times article that's actually on my Twitter. Um, I'm happy to get it up if you like. But one of the things that came through in terms of their research, which was a 40-year review of the economic development of the different classes of um, of the American population and, uh, and how the system has created an unequal distribution of wealth across um, many different populations. Um, and it seems to me like we have that here in South Africa and you're describing a similar situation over there. I mean, if you look at it in a, in a historical context, like what is driving this? I mean, life expectancy was, by the way, one of the things that came out of, um, of this New York Times piece of research where if you're in the top, you know, top 1% of earners, you will live up to 15 years longer. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, a phenomenon, I guess the wider phenomenon, and I would discuss this with my students, the social determinants of health. And one of the things I think that surprises my students is that 80% of the, of the arc of our lives, the health arc of our life from, from birth, which is probably a pretty dangerous time, to the end of our life, isn't, isn't shaped by medical intervention. It's shaped by social and economic forces, social economic status, where we live, what kind of food we have access to. And uh, we are seeing, I don't know, the mother of all lessons in that right now with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. In the States, uh, I've been trying not to pay, pay too much attention to American media, but um, uh, African Americans are greatly overrepresented with people who are sick and people who die. And here in Canada, I'm not sure what things are like in South Africa, but here in, in Canada, our major uh, loci of death, of mortality, are senior citizens' home because they're vulnerable, they're immune suppressed, they're often living in uh, very crowded conditions. And so we've got places where literally dozens of people have died in a very short order. Sorry, my uh, two-year-old daughter. Do you want to come say hello? Come here. Reagan, come here. Oh, hi, Reagan. How's it going? Uh-huh. Check you out. Who's that? Who's that? Hi. Are you going to take over the map round show and call it the... The Reggie Bear Show. Eh? Just make sure you ask great questions. Okay. <laughs> My youngest has her driver's license, so I just got to worry about car accidents. Jeez. <laughs> oh, it just gets worse, right? Your time will the, come, yeah. The things sure. you have to worry about, right? Um, well, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, what are some of the key findings through your research uh, when it comes to the systems that drive this unequal you know, distribution of wealth, the... Um, the system that drives, you know, longevity and lifespan across different populations, indigenous and not. What's what have you observed there? Well, in, it, from the starting point of this very wide disparity, and I'm sure it's the same thing in South Africa between uh, uh, Black South Africans and and uh, I guess newcomer South Africans. Uh, that gap. I went back into time, and I've got a degree in archaeology, so I was able to uh, to read the archaeological literature and. What I found was before Europeans uh, showed up on, on the continent of North America, it wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say indigenous people lived in a disease-free paradise. There were diseases, but um, the onslaught 
of new diseases brought by by Europeans when they arrived in America was literally uh, one American scholar, uh, David Stanner, called it a holocaust. Think of this, okay? We're the coronavirus is a virgin soil epidemic among us all. None of us has an acquired immunity because it's a new virus, right? Mm-hmm. In the case of smallpox here in in North America, or I guess in in the Americas, none of the indigenous people had any pre-existing resistance to smallpox. And we're just lucky that the coronavirus is nowhere near as dangerous as as the smallpox virus. So what that means is, is that in the span of three weeks or a month, you could have as many as eight or 10, eight out of 10 people dying a terrible death. Like that's the level of mortality. And the bigger, the more sophisticated the society, the greater the mortality because of population density and and a bunch of other factors. Mm. And in addition to that, we had our indigenous societies here work through uh, oral, oral knowledge, oral testimony, oral history. So in the span of three weeks, you lose your elders who, who contain your, you know, like they're sort of like your library of your community. You lose potentially 80% of your hunters, children, moms, you name it. So those societies were never, were never the same again. And as I tell my students, the, the somewhat fortunate few who, who survived that have just lived through the most deadly disease episode, like, you know, the most deadly disease in human history. Many of them died of, of hunger because they couldn't move to get food. So that, those, um, those outbreaks, those virgin soil outbreaks, were like an apocalypse for some communities. Yeah. How much of this was actually state-supported? In the early days, I don't think it was. This is before, you know, the germ theory of disease and that kind of thing. I'm sure the, uh, you know, the, the Christians who came, you know, just thought it was fate. In fact, um, the, uh, the Pilgrim Fathers who, who set up, uh, you know, the, some of the first colonies in the United States thought it was, thought it was Providence, that so many indig- Indigenous people had died and that there were basically gardens that had been abandoned through mortality were, were there f- for the newcomers. So, you know, they, in their minds, it was almost divine intervention. Yeah. It seems to me that a lot of this history has been deliberately suppressed. I mean, if you think about the Americans and the indigenous, well, I'll say the Americans then, but the first, um, you know, colonialists that arrived in America um, and, you know, you had your indigenous populations there, they were literally wiped out um, through force and other means. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's, a, there's some conversation about, about it, but not at least, I mean, I'm not living in America, but from what I can what I can observe, is that a lot of the history around the impact um, of diseases, state supported starvation, and things like that on these indigenous populations has largely been uh, suppressed and deliberately. One could argue. I mean, would you agree with a statement like that? You know about this the suppression. That's an, that's a very interesting question because I'm, I'm I'm working on this and I'm working on a, a, a researching a smallpox epidemic that happened in the 1860s just in the aftermath of the California gold rush. They discovered gold in California in in, uh, 1848, 1849, and there was a huge influx of settlers. And I'm I'm just staring over at my bookcase, and there are actually books called An American Genocide, Genocide State. So it's interesting that it's been, rather than suppressed, it's been ignored. So Mm -hmm. scholars are writing about this, and and I've got colleagues in the states that will like these are cases of undeniable genocide. The the, the uh, early government of California raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for quote unquote Indian hunting militias. 
Like there, it was undeniably genocidal. But what it is is uh, Americans will just say, yes, it was a genocide and, and move on. We in Canada, and, and we are very judgmental in Canada of our southern neighbors, uh, we've taken, uh, I guess, a, a lesson from, from your playbook in South Africa. And in the last few years, we've had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission travel around the country to talk about residential schools, which is one of our sort of ugliest uh, chapters in our history. So for probably 80 years or even more, uh, indigenous kids, young indigenous kids were taken away, sent to mission schools, uh, weren't allowed to speak their languages, were treated very poorly, many cases of sexual abuse, psychological abuse, that kind of thing. Uh, institutionalized malnutrition to the point where I've got a, a colleague, Ian Mosby, has written about Canadian government nutritional experiments on residential school children. This is uh, in the mid 20th century, people were working on working on developing nutrition science. So these, these um, physicians who, who were working for the Canadian government would go to residential schools, probably ask if they could feed the children more food. There was no money to, to, feed, the, um, to feed the children because it was such a low priority. And then they would ask if they could, uh, you know, give half of the students riboflavin or something like that, or a vitamin supplement. But in order, but in order to get a scientific baseline for those studies, they just kept all the kids malnourished for a year or two to, to establish that baseline. So um, we're trying to come to terms with that in Canada. Like I said, we've had, uh, we've had years of, of discussion. Um, our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, a few years ago said that this was one of his top priorities. He's frustrated a lot of people because it's very hard to turn that ship around. It's been going one way for 150 years. Uh, he's not going to be able to do it overnight. Yeah, so this is the similar conversation to what I was having with Nancy Bristow. That's the lady I was referring to earlier. Um, so, uh, you know, if you think about even the COVID-19 situation that we kind of suddenly find ourselves in, um, one of the key points that she made um, to me yesterday was that, um, you know, history in the pandemic sense has also been largely ignored. Um, you know, there was the 1918 um, Spanish flu and the decimated 50, you know, killed 50 million people in like six weeks or something insane like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then COVID came around and we were like, I'm sorry, what's this? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, they were yeah. large, even though it was documented, even though what your, you know, your research has clearly shown, you know, that uh, it has been documented to an extent, but it has largely been ignored. Um, do you feel a sense at all that society has allowed these kinds of things to happen. So whether that's the, you know, the, the, um, the prejudice uh, treatment towards indigenous populations of Canada and more broadly, then you think about the pandemic that we currently find ourselves in around the world. Um, do you think society has just kind of allowed this to happen? And if so, why? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, 
books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I think uh, as individuals, probably as communities, we have an optimism bias. We want, we want to think of the positive things. It's very difficult for us to deal with, with negative things, especially amorphous threats like a, like a virus. Like if we, you know, if we are dealing with climate change is another example of that, right? Mm. Uh, so I think there is a bias for us not to want to deal with that because we could be absorbed by all negative feeling. I've got... We've, uh, we've shifted our teaching here at the university and most universities to be online. And I've got some students that are perfectly fine finishing their, their terms and others that are just so anxious and so nervous about being away from their families that they're not able to do it. So I think it's the full gamut of human emotion that, uh, that takes place. Uh, one thing here in Canada in the aftermath of, uh, of the 1918 flu was we set up uh, a, a federal and national level Department of Health. So uh, I guess there were institutional changes after that uh, terrible pandemic. One interesting thing, and I guess this ties into the, um, the gap between Indigenous, Canadian, Indigenous people and, and the rest of us in Canada, was that Indigenous people weren't the responsibility of the federal government or of the Department of Health. They stayed under the, uh, under the mandate of the Department of Indian Affairs. So by the 1930s, 15 years after uh, the pandemic, uh, a sick Indigenous person was the responsibility of the fe- of the Canadian Minister of Mines. So it's a, a crazy situation. It's uh, yeah, very reminiscent of, of of your your history in South Africa. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. You know, when I when I would say most people when they think about Canada, or when I let me let me not, not talk for the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> when, when I think of Canada, I think of justice and fairness and um you know a, a very candy coated view of well canada's amazing like i've been there i've been to vancouver and and toronto it's it's an amazing place so i could highly see myself living in in vancouver you know what i mean and i like canadians you know and the, as you say there's um there's a lot of i would also argue that there's world judgment um from uh, from the rest of the world outside of canada towards your southern neighbors as well you understand so canada's always oh. a step above america like america's the one you know um what i mean by step above well it's it's your lifestyle you know yeah um and yeah. it's very much about togetherness and justin trudeau is a fantastic leader and like um some other people we might mention um <laughs> and um and uh, I'm, I've got my green card for the states. That's why I'm not trying to diss. I don't know if the FBI is going to be listening to Just this. <laughs> you know what I mean? You never know. Yeah. iTunes is in America. Um, and um, anyway, so so I, when I think about Canada, I think about all the good things uh, about human culture and, and history. You know, and how it, and the work of good, solid Canadians that um, uh, you know over time have created a great country brand. Um, do you think that, I mean, what you're basically describing to me is actually something else. You're saying to me that there's a, there's a candy coated version of Canadian history, uh, in some sense, 
Um, and that, um, as you say, this, this is like Canada's Holocaust, right? That isn't really discussed and documented, etc. I mean, how, how, what do we need to know about that um, Canada's Holocaust, quote unquote? I mean, to what extent um, is it similar to to other Holocausts that we've that we know about? Prob- probably more so than um, than anything else around the world. Um, in what ways is it similar? What, you know, like, to what extent was this such a, a big deal and an unsettling, unsparing, and kind of gut-wrenching, um, you know, exercise by the states. For sure. Well, one thing is I'd be, that Holocaust uh, analogy I used was for the virgin soil epidemic. So in my part of the country, I'm in the middle of the northern Great Plains, halfway between the boreal forest and, and the Rocky Mountains, literally in the middle of a, the grasslands. Uh, our virgin soil epidemic here in this in this territory took place in the 1780s. And uh, it it really was like a Holocaust. The indigenous nations, some indigenous identities completely disappeared. In fact, the dominant indigenous group here in my territory are called the Plains Cree. Well, the Plains Cree, there were fur traders around the Hudson's Bay Company was, uh, was a presence. They were keeping journals and had, had communities identified. Some First Nations, we, our tribes are called First Nations, some of those nations disappeared as distinct entities. And in the aftermath, when the dust settled from those epidemics, new identities were formed. And the Plains Cree survivors came together, brought their traditions and, you know, recreated family structures and that kind of thing to establish this new identity of the Plains Cree. So those early epidemics, you could use the analogy of a Holocaust. I would say that's probably pushing it for uh, federal government policy, but we've got a very, yeah, your your description as a sugar coated identity is probably uh, a good one. Uh, what I would say is is that from the time Canada acquired this territory, and as it as it expanded, uh, there were treaties. So there was an acknowledgement that First Nations people, that the Indigenous people, own the land, and so those treaties were ostensibly about uh, surrendering title to the land. Now, there's there's new scholarship, Indigenous scholars have, have talked about this for years, that the discussion of surrendering ownership of the land was, um, wasn't discussed at the negotiation. It was put, in, put into the legal terminology of the printed text back in Ottawa and sent back. So the Indigenous people didn't actually understand that they, or they, they weren't told that they were transferring the land. When they transferred, when when these treaties were completed, very soon after, uh, the, the indigenous people were forced to live on very small plots of land. Uh, they were their movement eventually within less than a decade of signing the treaties. Their movement was controlled with a pass system. And I know you folks had a pass system in mm. in, in your country. Our country uh, used a pass system to keep Indigenous people out of the uh, commercial economy. So to, for a First Nations person, for, for an Indian person to leave the reserve, you needed a written pass from a white Indian agent, probably from 1885 into the 1950s. So sure. mobility was controlled. Uh, we talked about residential schools. From the 1880s on, just about every single Indigenous child was taken from their families purposely to break the bonds of family and community and tradition and was retrained in a, in a Christian environment where, uh, like I said, you had institutionalized malnutrition, uh, you had cases of sexual abuse, psychological abuse. It must have been a living hell. And I remember 
couple years ago, I was on a, at a First Nation and somebody said, imagine this, imagine a community with no children. That's how, that's how our, that's what our communities were like. So you've got generation upon generation, that residential school system worked for probably a hundred years. You had children being taken away from their parents. They lived through probably, you know, a living hell at the residential schools. When they were allowed to go back and had their own children, their children were taken away. So you had the double, I don't know, the double horror of not only the children going through that, that terrible uh, ordeal in most cases, you had the parents knowing they were going to go through that ordeal. At the residential schools, um, this is crazy. This is like a, a, a seemingly unimportant thing. But very soon after the schools were established, there was a change in the funding regime. And what that meant was is that rather than every school getting a grant from the government, it was, it was uh, religious denominations, Catholics and Protestants, uh, that, that provided the service. Rather than a, a grant being given to the schools, there was a, a grant per child. So what that meant was it wasn't enough money per child. So the schools ended up cramming as many children as they could just to make ends meet, kind of an economy of scale. Mm. So for generations, those schools were overpopulated, the children were malnourished, and they became breeding grounds for tuberculosis. And that's an, like an institutionalized uh, program uh, that really wasn't dealt with. So, so the schools, as part of their architecture, actually had cemeteries designed into their into their construction projects because the mortality was so high. Um, shit. Another aspect of this was uh, there was something called an Indian Act that was imposed in 1876, which which turned adult male First Nations people, and we, we, we didn't have universal suffrage, only men got the vote. But from 1876 to 1960, the legal status of an adult First Nations person was that of a child. They were basically wards of the state. So there was no, there was no um, participation in governance in, outside of the community. Uh, basically, the state controlled identity, controlled every aspect of people's lives from birth to death. And we are probably the only liberal democracy that still has a racially based uh, law, the Indian Act. And there's been a lot of discussion over the last few years about what to do with it because this this crazy act, which is like totally based in race, like it determines who an Indian is, and like I said, it's old school terminology because it was developed in 1876, is the only legislation, while it's been used to subjugate and marginalize people, it's the only piece of law we have in Canada that acknowledges the differential status of First Nations people which also provides them with, in, with indigenous rights. So it's a, man, it's a tough one. People have been arguing about this for years. Like, what do you do with it? Because you, uh, you can't just end it because uh, we've, indigenous people have treaty rights, they've got land rights, they've got communal rights that, uh, that have to be recognized. So uh, like I said, it, it, it wasn't the militaristic kind of attack that the Americans uh, undertook. You know, like they actually had Indian wars. We didn't have that same that same level of violence, but we certainly had institutionalized violence that, that was maintained man, for hundred years or more. That is frightening for me. That's really hectic. Um, <clears throat> just to, just to hear it. Cause it just makes you question everything that you know. Um, because you, you, it makes me realize that you only know what you don't know. We don't know what you don't yeah. know actually. You know what I mean? And it's just like, Whoa. 
but I mean, it's fascinating, this whole thing for me, because what drives something like this? You know, like if I think about apartheid as a system, I mean, obviously it was horrific and should never have happened, you know, and um, and like I can't speak for Hendrik Favut, you know. I mean, I've had one conversation around where it came from and it was literally around a system to divide the population and to enforce um, economic um, uh, uh, economic differences and differences within society and class, but by design, um, and yeah. it, it's a deliberate way to um, to like as an example, there's a township near every mine, um, yeah. because you know you're going to work at the mine, so you will only ever get paid a certain amount of money. Um, and so, who drives those? Who buys from that community? Right. Well, the, the the you know the ladies selling and making clothing and things like that. Well, it's the rich, rich white, you know, privileged people in the suburbs, um, and that's how it's been. And by the way, it still is today. You know, we it's um, obviously we're living in a democracy now, but still, you can see the impact of the system. You know, we've got the yeah. apartheid museum here, and um, you know, at least you know, thank God we have. Um, our history being shown in its full glory, you know, uh, and I use glory in a very loose sense there because it wasn't exactly glorious for us, but it's worth remembering, you know. Um, and so if you think about apartheid and you think about the, what you've just described where you've got, you know, kids being taken away from these indigenous families, I mean, to break the bond of family in these in these kind of communities, it's, it's like I cannot reconcile in my mind why we would do this. And that's kind of my question to you. Why, what drives this in your experience? What has your research led you to conclude? Well, this, this, the simple reason is racism. But I guess the, the way to think about this is uh, a lot of these institutions, probably in South Africa as well, the mindset that established these social relations was, you know, sort of a Victorian English accent uh, mindset. So uh, here's an example in Canada. Okay, so in my part of the country, in my part of the country, the indigenous people lived for thousands upon thousands of years, and the bedrock of their of their food supply was the bison. You know, you've seen a buffalo, right? Like those yeah, yeah. cowboy movies. Okay. So with with that technology and with that uh, nu- nutrition base, indigenous people in on the Great Plains in the 19th century, were the tallest people in the world, right? Very high-protein, low-fat diet, and as much as you wanted. Within, oh, man, maybe 10 years of signing treaties, the bison, were, the bison disappeared. There was, a, there was a famine, and the indigenous people had the foresight to have a, a famine and pestilence clause built into some of the treaties. It was like in a time of crisis, the government will come through with humanitarian aid. I'm using modern terminology, but that was the thing. Uh, but what happened was, was that rather than humanitarian aid being provided, that uh, that stipulation in the treaty forced people into treaties and forced them onto those uh, reserves I was talking about, very small pieces of land where they were ostensibly to take up agriculture, but there were so many institutional barriers that agriculture really didn't work because basically a white official was jerking them around on a regular basis. Mm. There are a, a few communities, a few indigenous communities, the Dakota people who, who weren't considered to be indigenous to Canada. Some, uh, you may have heard of a, a famous uh, chief called sitting bull who, who, yes. who uh, dispatched the, um, 
uh, General Custer in the Seventh Cavalry. Sitting Bull actually spent some time in Canada. Uh, you know, the uh, the American cavalry was chasing him, and he um, he produced at the border. There were a couple of Northwest Mounted Police, the Mounties. Uh, the Mounties met him, and he produced a George the Third medal, and he said, "I'm a British subject because Sitting Bull's ancestors had fought for for England in the War of 1812." So he he and five thousand followers were were allowed into Canada. And there are a few Dakota communities that were given reserves because they weren't treaty Indians, like they didn't have the legal status of treaty. They had a very different medical history and economic history. So in your country, the indigenous people were used, as you said, by, by the rich white entrepreneurs, their labor, their, their, uh, their human resources were used for the benefit of, uh, of white people. In Canada, the past system I mentioned earlier, which was only imposed on, on treaty Indians, uh, was used to keep them out of the commercial economy. So if there was a, you know, like a true aspiration for assimilation to get everyone together, they went exactly the opposite way and kept people out of the, uh, of the economic system. I was telling you about the, the farms not really working out on reserves. In, I think it was 1888, somebody in Ottawa read about the ladder of civilization. So this is like social Darwinism. It's complete hokum, like it's baloney. But it's it's the hierarchy of, of social organization from, you know, barbarism through whatever it is. And the, and the pinnacle would be, say, Victorian England. Okay? You familiar with that kind of concept, Matt? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So somebody realized that, that commercial farming wasn't working out on reserves out here in the West. And what they did was, for 15 years, they imposed something called the peasant farming policy. And what that was, was they took away mechanical farming implements and gave the people hand sights, you know, like the Grim Reaper would use on a, yeah. on a, at a Halloween party. And what that was, was to get people to go through the stage of social organization called the peasant stage in order to, you know, like they were jumping too many stages of, of civilization. And I think that's the kind of thinking that ran most of these institutions. Like there was just an assumption by, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Celts from, from England who were, you know, dominating the world with the British empire, that they were destined to, to, to run the world. Right. Mm. And so once those institutions got set up, they just kept, they just kept rolling. And, 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 like I said, in the case of Canada, the last residential school didn't close until 1996. It's crazy. Yes, that's insane. Well, you know, they used to say that the sun would never set on the British, or doesn't set on the British Empire, would never not set on the British Empire, something like that. The sun would always shine on it. Um, and, um, and yet today, they're no longer part of the European Union. So, you know. Yeah, yeah things change. So one thing, this is outside of my, my specialty, but I've got colleagues that have been working on the relationship between Canadian government officials and South African government officials in the early 20th century. So there were, there, I don't know about teams of, of South African officials coming to look at, at the reserve system, but there was, there was exchange of ideas between our government and your government in the early 20th century. So a lot of, really? like the, idea, the ideas were shared. See, that's fascinating for me. That's like genuinely fascinating for me. Well, can you elaborate yeah. on that? And to what is what? Um, what have you heard or discovered in that area? 
well, like I said, this is outside. Like um, this is outside of of my personal research. Sure, sure. But there, but there were uh, South African officials came to Canada and looked at the looked at our system of reserves, which is basically in a like a it's an apartheid system. Like mm. people were were compelled to live on there through the past system, and actually that past system had had no legal authority. It was government policy. Like if 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 an indigenous person had been able to go to court, I'm sure the whole thing that it would have been a house of cards. But for a couple of decades in the 20th century, it was illegal in Canada for a First Nations person to hire a lawyer. Talk about a stacked deck, eh? Jesus. Um, so South African officials came and maybe got ideas from, from our system. And I think it was from the 19-teens up until probably... Then uh, the early 1950s, we had some changes to the to the Indian Act. There were some amendments that made it less uh, less draconian, I guess, if you want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where our two systems really diverged. Because I think in South Africa, and I'm I'm no expert at all, but in South Africa, the rules got more strict in the 1950s. Ours were ours were liberalized to some extent, and there there, there were changes in policy. Where in your country, things got got uh got harsher and more forceful yeah but for for a generation or two they were probably on pretty parallel courses yeah that's interesting for me I've, you know when i've had a couple of conversations on the show about um governments doing social experiments quotes unquote uh, one of those conversations was with a, a chap who's far out there his name's bill yarborough he was um part of the mk ultra um uh, mind control experimentation oh, yeah story yeah where they took literally same thing took kids away from families and like did all sorts of weird things trying to develop an interrogation protocol that would rival the soviets during the cold war um and then and there's like there's 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 quite a few different stories there were these twins i don't know there's a program on netflix with i don't know whether you've seen it whether you have netflix there out there but um you have it yeah cool so these canadian netflix Oh, you have Canadian Netflix. Does that count though? Because South African Netflix doesn't count. <laughs> Half the stuff yeah, you can't that's, get. That's the joke here. Somebody's got an American Netflix account, and they're like the uh, yeah, they're like the drug dealer. Yeah. Um, so it's like there were these twins that it was a famous, famous story in America even to this day, and it's covered in this Netflix documentary where these twins were also separated at birth. And they were one was put into a lower class family, a middle class family, the second one, and then the third in, a, in an affluent uh, family. And they they monitored them for twenty years, and just by chance they reconnected. Um, and then the whole story gets into well, how, what was this program actually? You know, um, and um, and 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 it was literally this social experiment carried out and funded by the U.S. government, right? Wow. Yeah, and so and so then you got MK Ultra, and it's like at different stages of history. And so actually, if you if you go all the way back to where you your your story starts, it seems to me that you know we we we've been playing social experiments for hundreds of years. Um, it's obviously the motivations behind these different things. Some are, some can be positive, and some are largely negative. But if you think about even looking forward to 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 the present day, if you think about social experiments in the digital age it's like well you've got fake news right the ability to manipulate elections through data um you know and 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 um and um 
you know, I, I, do you feel like, uh, you know, there's, there's value in social experimentation and how should we be uh, e- experimenting with current society? Wow, that's a good question. Um, talking about the social, social experimentation, I told you about that, uh, that peasant farming system, and that was based on, absolutely based on pseudoscience, right, this social Darwinist concept. But as we went through generation upon generation of children being taken away, I told you about the Indian Act being, uh, I don't know, about liberalized, like the, the crazier parts were, were, uh, were changed in the 1950s. Over the course of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, many of those schools were shut down and they had something called day schools. Okay, So like rather than the kids being taken away from their families, there were federal government schools in the communities. But almost as soon as, as the residential school system was winding down, there was a new issue that was brought up. And what that was, was foster care. So this is another issue that's that's coming to the fore here in Canada, there are more Indigenous children in foster care, mostly with non-Indigenous families, ma- vast majority with non-Indigenous families. There are more Indigenous kids in foster care right now than were ever in the residential school system. So what that is, is children were taken, adopted, as you said, into, into different kinds of families, and never, you know, they were taken away because they were poor. They, their families may have loved them, uh, but social workers, and I'm sure they were white social workers, t- took the t- took the kids, apprehended the kids, and had them adopted out. So we've got we've got literally hundreds of thousands of people who are who are looking for their biological families here in Canada. Jeez. So it's a not, that's another version of we call it social experimentation. I'm sure the social workers did it. You know, were motivated in their own minds by by doing good but it didn't really pan out that way yeah and also the the just to go back to that series it's called three identical strangers um have a have a have a look yeah have a look for that but the where it kind and i'm kind of spoiler alert so don't close your ears if um (laughs) (laughs) if you if you uh want to watch this thing but but basically, at the, right at the end, um, a lot of documents. So twenty thousand documents were classified, and then through this actual movie, they were declassified, but they were largely redacted. And unfortunately, for for these twins, and by the way, there were other examples of other twins. So to this day, we still don't know actually how many twins were separated at birth. Um, and right. and but but the sad part was there was no conclusion to it. It was like it oh. was. It was just done, but there was no conclusion. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Which is an incredibly sad thing because we can point fingers and go, oh, well, look, this, look at this and look at you know, these families and look at this and look at this. But, but what's the conclusion for it? Do you know what I mean? We look, yeah. at, it, we look at it with a heavy heart and we go, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, they can't believe that we allowed this to happen and racism, blah, 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 blah. But there's, there's not really a conclusion do you know what i mean to many of these some of them are of course but in many respects there aren't i mean what conclusion do you land on when it comes to social experiments and the systems that drive inequality yeah uh that that sort of points to we have um we've got a lot of talk in the last five years or so about reconciliation and basically what you're talking with that is is supposed to mean it's been cheapened because you know people are using it all the time but it's coming to a conclusion, right? Mm. Figuring it out. And uh, there's an indigenous scholar from Ontario, Pam Palmiter, 
who gave a talk at the university. And, and one of the things is that a lot of non-Indigenous people are like, can you guys get over it? All like residential schools have been closed. Like we're trying to get out, you know, can't you get over it? And what Pam Palmer said was, well, we can get over it. We could get over it if it wasn't still happening to us. And one of the, one of the examples she used, we, I've been talking about schools and then fosterage and all that stuff. One of the crazy things that, that continues even into the present is that on reserve, so there, it's, it's land, it's owned, the land is owned by the federal government for use and, and in trust for the communities that, that live there. The indigenous people don't own the land. If a school is on the reserve, and some communities are, are quite big, several thousand in, in some cases, but some are just a few hundred. If the school is on reserve, it's funded by the federal government, by the government of Canada. If the school is off reserve, it's a provincial authority. I live in the province of Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. So Saskatchewan would pay for schools that are off reserve. And one of the things I tell my students is the provincial funding system provides probably 11,000 Canadian dollars per child or per student in the schools. In the federal government system, it's more like $7,000. So think of this, Matt. From the time an Indigenous kid on a reserve goes to kindergarten, like five years old, they're at a 30% funding deficit from other kids who are like who were just off reserve in a provincial system. So that's... <laughs> You know, that's mm -hmm. institutionalized racism. And the, the Trudeau government, they've been in power for five or six years. They're, they're trying to address this, but the, the funding differences are so huge, it's going to take decades to fix it, to, to, to close that gap. Yeah. And education, is, education is, a, a, is an extremely important social determinant of health. And a few years ago, somebody did a, a study. It was actually during a federal election. Uh, an Indigenous leader said in Canada, it was more likely for a First Nations teenager to be incarcerated than to graduate from high school. Think of that one. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And again, uh, it's hard, uh, you know, like once you know something, it's hard to unknow it, as you said. Uh, but a, a lot of Canadians, like I said, a lot of Canadians are really, uh, it challenges our our identity, you know, like who we think, who we think we are for 95% of us. If you could be oblivious to the indigenous issues, we're fine, but, mm. but we're not. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm a big subscriber to is that is the idea that um, identity is, is one of the most powerful forces in the world. Um, yep. And so to your point around reconciliation, I mean, we, we, you know, you mentioned it earlier, we did the truth and reconciliation uh, commission. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, well, I should say, and it's necessary to reconcile your history in order to form an, a, a, a more accurate identity for you. And then, you know, your own history from where you come from, South Africa, in my case, Canada, in your case. Yeah. Um, and then to find the perspective and the, the, the perspective that you need to make new choices. Do you know what I mean? Um, because uh, apartheid, uh, you know, in, in my schooling wasn't, wasn't taught. Do you know what I mean? Like at all. Right. Um, yeah. I didn't, I, like, I remember watching Nelson Mandela be released from prison on TV and I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what country I really lived in at all. So I was ignorant and I was deliberately protected from the truth. You know, I remember saying to my dad, I was like, who is that? And he goes, no, that's Nelson Mandela. And I was like, well, who's that? And he goes, no, he's going to be the future president. But it's like, but you don't know. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and like another, I got another great story. Um, there's a, a lady I had on the show um, and uh, she wrote a, a book all about forgiveness and her dad was, um, was murdered by Eugene to Blanche. He was assassinated. Um, and Eugene was part of the, um, the, the organization that was the white, the, the right wing white militant organization that was very much He's trying to him on the news here in Canada. Oh, really? Didn't he have like an arm patch, like a Nazi? That's it. Yeah. It was a red one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and also as part of the truth and reconciliation commission, um, she met him face to face with the family. Um, and, uh, they went to the prison and, and so on and so forth. And, and she forgave him because she had to reconcile, but she had to reconcile her history as part of that. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, but, sure. but I don't think we, a lot of people choose not to reconcile their history. And, and why do you think that is? I just think it's too tough to, you know, like if, if your identity is based on a fraud or a crime or something like that, it's pretty tough. If you've been living, living a, you know, a good middle-class life as both of us probably did. It's, it's very tough for us to, Oh, my life is built on a scam. Uh, I remember somebody, somebody used the analogy. Uh, what if you invited someone into your house and then they took over your house and then they locked you in the basement of your house? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's tough for us who, who are, you know, like we, it's, it's the, it's the structure. We might be, we might think we're kind people and we're kind to our families and other people in our sort of demographic group, but um, it's easy for us to ignore. But another thing is uh, in that situation where, where the, the victim's relative talked to, to Mr. Terre Blanche, like there was that personal connection. And, and from what I understand, you know, you could swear at the person you killed my, my relative or whatever it is. But in the aftermath of that, we still don't have a great, and this is in Canada, probably the same in South Africa. We don't have a, a shift in the wealth. So those social determinants I talked to, to you about at the beginning of our talk, Indigenous people are still largely poor. And like I said, through inequity in the education system, uh, there's food insecurity. And there's probably a very similar situation to that in South Africa, right? Like, mm. so you're... You're ostensibly legally free, but you're still bound by the shackles of poverty or whatever it might be. Like those are the those are the structural changes, and I don't know, man. That's going to be a generational. That's totally going to be a generational um, project. Yeah, it is, and I think uh, the, the lady's name is Candice Mama, and the actual book's called "Forgiveness Redefined." Uh, we have the same publisher, and, um, and you know, but to to to, to say um, whose whose role is it now? And I think Candice is a is a young woman, right? She's in her twenties, twenty six or something like that. Um, and so I, you know, when I when I look at what she's done with reconciling her past and creating, uh, becoming to terms with her own story, packaging it so that it can make a difference to others, to raise awareness of the true history, right, and and its unique impact on specific people. Um, and then by sharing that narrative, it, it ultimately makes the difference that, you know, as you say, is necessary in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things, one of my things, I guess, is that because I'm a professor, because I'm a teacher, it, the change is going to come with the young people. So one, one thing that uh, our province has done, and we've got actually, we, Saskatchewan is, is, it's not necessarily an outlier, but we have probably uh, 17, 18% first, 
First Nations and Métis. So the Métis would be kind of like the analogy of your colored people back in the old days. Okay. Yep. So we've got an ever-growing Indigenous population here in Saskatchewan. So one of the things that the provincial government who's in charge of education is, is they've mandated Indigenous education to every student in the province. And that's been going for probably 10 years or more. So, you know, you were talking about we you never learned the history of apartheid in school. A lot of people my age never heard about the, you know, like whether it was whether it was suppressed or just ignored, we can talk about, about that, mm. that one. But um, like my students get to hear about this and we've just shifted over with the pandemic. We've just shifted over to online teaching and stuff like that. And one of the things I asked my students to do was to, to watch and comment on a documentary film. So get this, we've got a marginalized population. The indigenous population is marginalized here in Canada for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, the, most, the most marginalized are indigenous women. So we've just gone through a national inquiry on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, which have identified more than 1300 cases of women either being killed because they're indi like indigenous women being killed or indigenous women disappearing. So we've just gone through, I think the inquiry traveled around Canada for probably a year or more. And most of my students had never heard of that. Now, so they've spent an hour and a half watching this film, and in their responses, uh, many of them were like, I had no idea this was going on. Mm -hmm. So I guess the first step, you know, like we talk about reconciliation as the end point, it's probably more of a relationship than, uh, than a destination, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but the first thing is we got to get to the truth. We got to learn. We got to learn about this stuff. Then we got to get to the justice of like, how do we, how do we make them, not necessarily make amends. I don't want that to be sound too Christian, but like, how do we get to justice? Mm -hmm. Right. So we've got, we've got a lot of work to do before we can get to that, you know, pine, I don't know, pine in the sky, but it's somewhere up in the, up in the mountains that the goal of reconciliation and you folks are probably dealing with that as well. Right. Like you're mm -hmm. with, with, uh, with the end of apartheid, that's a huge step, but, but it's the social change that's going to come as a generational thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're seeing that now, right? Uh, yeah. With uh, young millennials. Yeah. Who I, I employ a lot of them. <laughs> so, so it's a, it's quite interesting, you know, coming with my generation, I sound old, but I'm only like 40, but, um, but yeah, just to see, um, you know, the, you know, how, how society has moved on, uh, but yet still holds on to many things. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, for and, sure. and as you said, dude, it's going to take like another hundred years, fifty years to to just to, to really try to move on, you know. Yeah, and I guess the what we can do as as parents, as teachers, as podcasters is just get the word out. Because what I found in, in my experience, I've given a, a lot of talks. My book was published in 2013, and I've I've literally given hundreds of talks. And when it, when it's a, a mixed crowd, the brown faces kind of nod, like, "Yeah, we know this is our family story," but the the white faces are shocked because they, you know, like say a, an adult crowd, they have never heard of this stuff, and it really challenges. It's almost like an intervention, you know, that expression, like you yeah. intervene with an alcoholic or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are truly shocked, yeah, because it it flies in the face of really everything everything they've been taught and, and how they see themselves. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, mate, let's wrap this up. Um, why do you yeah, do what, why do you do what you do? Why do you do all of this? What gets you out of bed in the morning? 
Well, uh, at, at one level, I'm the parent of, of three daughters, and I don't want to have to explain to them, you know, to uh, to explain away some injustice that's going on in you know in society. Somebody being shaken down by the cops, mm. being um, being ID'd or something like that. And really, it's just you know, like uh, there are there are social relations, economic situations that just aren't right. Like they're they're unjust. And I guess it's just trying to identify, you know, like I've got the privilege to be able to, to, to spend years researching these things. And so I'm using, hopefully using that privilege to, to, to make Canada a better place. And the world by extension. Yeah. James Tashuk, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, for sure, Matt. Take care of yourself. All right, mate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, you're in a game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.